My name is Alex Soros, and I'm our Family Life Pastor, and I'm excited to be with you today as we conclude our series called Spiritual Disciplines. So far, we've walked through a couple different ones. We've talked about service and prayer and rest and fasting and worship, and today we're ending by talking about giving, which as I was walking through this, it became abundantly clear that if we get this down If we understand how to give of our lives over to Jesus, the other stuff is going to lock into place. But before we get in too deep into talking about giving, I want to highlight something that we've been talking about already through this series. It's this idea that spiritual disciplines aren't a way into heaven. They're not for us to do so that we can earn Jesus' love. What they do is they help us to grow closer to God. They help us experience his love in its fullness and experience his plan for our lives. And only then do we really get to understand his purpose and his fulfillment and the joy that he alone offers. There's a lot of stuff that the world will say that, hey, if you do this stuff, you'll be happy or you'll have purpose. And that stuff only lasts for a while. Eventually it fades, whether it's tomorrow or in 20 years or it's when we pass away, but the truth of God stands forever. And this is why Paul, who was a convert to Christianity, previously was sought out to destroy the church, found Jesus, and started to tell the world, really, about Jesus. He said this to the church in Rome. He said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So these spiritual disciplines help us to grow closer to that understanding of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. We get to experience him and to walk with him and to know his presence. And through that, we get to understand what he means by perfect. Now, for a long time, I thought when it said good, pleasing, perfect, I thought two things. One, I thought from my perspective. Is this good for me? Is it pleasing for me? Is this something that I would like? But no, no, it's good, pleasing, and perfect for his eternal purpose, his eternal plan forever. And then the second thing is when it said perfect, I used to always think, oh, is that like something that's just better than good or something without blemish? But what it's specifically talking about is a seed. Now, when a seed becomes a plant, it becomes into its perfect state, what it was designed to be. And that's what God's word is talking about that he wants to take us to this new life where we get to experience who we were designed to become and we get to understand that by growing closer to God. So there's amazing blessings in doing these spiritual disciplines. I know that they're challenging. Sometimes we look at them fasting, we look at rest and prayer, we say, I don't know if I have time for them. They seem hard, but we can do them. And when we do them, we'll get the blessings of God with them. We'll get to know him more. And I've, I've started to understand that a little clearer by reading a book. It's called, I Dare to Calm Father. It's the miraculous story of a Muslim woman's encounter with God. It's written by a lady named Bill Sheik. And she lived in Pakistan. She passed away a couple years ago. But while she was in Pakistan, she encountered the living God. She was dreaming, and she was introduced to Jesus through a dream. And then she went and was like, what is going on? So she went to a local missionary and started having questions. She got a Bible and started reading this Bible, and she left the Muslim faith for the Christian faith. And this was something that took risk. Because in her life in Pakistan, where she was, she could have been killed from leaving the Muslim faith. It's still in the Quran saying, if you're defecting from this to the the Christian faith, you can be killed. And she knew that some of her relationships would leave her. 
She knew it would be much harder to live in the family that she was in, and she even was afraid that the son that she adopted would be taken from her. But as she was staring the choice to follow God or not, she said this in her book. Oh Lord, I cried as I paced the graveled path. Could you really want me to leave my family? Can a God of love want me to afflict pain on others? And in the darkness of despair, all I could hear were his words, the words I had just read in Matthew. Anyone who puts his love for father or mother above his love for me does not deserve to be mine. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That was from Matthew 10, 37 through 38. Matthew's one of Jesus' followers that, that followed was his disciple and then wrote this down. Bilquishik ends this passage by saying, This Jesus did not compromise. He did not want any competition. This Jesus does not compromise. He does not want any competition. And so she made this decision. She was going to follow God. And through that, she did face adversity. Someone tried to burn her house down. A lot of her staff quit and left. A lot of her family deserted her. She had to find out when people passed away in her family through her staff, through, through the grapevine when people would talk to her. She sacrificed a lot, but she knew that if she followed God, she could be in step and in relationship with the God of the universe. And so she counted it as joy because the more she got to know God, the more she got to experience his presence and understood that will, that good, pleasing, perfect will for her life. And she understood something that sometimes we forget sometimes that we neglect. And this is our take-home point. It comes right out of that Matthew chapter 10, and it's this. In our lives, Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. There's no middle ground there. Jesus says, I want to be Lord of everything. A lot of times what we do is we like to play God in some areas of our lives, and we control it, and then we give God the leftovers. But Jesus did not say that. He wants all of our lives. He says, you give everything to me and be, let me be your Lord, which means master and God. He's saying, give everything to me. He said this, and it was recorded by Matthew in chapter 6, verse 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. See, Jesus asks for our allegiance. It's kind of like when you get married. You make some vows, and in those vows you say, we are going to be united. In God's word, it says we are united as one. It's no mistake that in God's word, it refers to us as the bride of Jesus, because he wants us to be the same way, to be united together, to have our trust and our allegiance and our lives completely devoted to God. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, who doesn't compromise and doesn't tolerate competition, picks money in this passage to say you can't serve two masters. And I love that he doesn't say it's hard to serve two masters. He said you just can't do it. And he could have picked a, a myriad of different gods that we like to serve, but he picked money. And I believe it's because money has always lured people into a submission through a promise of purpose, security, and self-worth reason we work and sometimes we buy stuff to make ourselves happy and it's also the reason why we allow money to stress us out so much that it tricks us into thinking that it will supply all of our needs but it simply won't. This is what Jesus taught to a young man who came to him. As Jesus was walking this earth people would come and ask questions and there was this one young man that wanted to be one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples. And so he came up to him and this is their exchange recorded in the book of Luke. Once, 
And it's Luke 18, 18 through 23. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. At the beginning of this, the guy comes up and says, Jesus, he calls him teacher, and, and he says, I know that you're good. And so God reminds this guy that Jesus is God, because he says only God is good. And then he shares this important lesson. But it's important for us to know a couple of things. Jesus is not saying that money is bad. He's also not saying that all of us right now, we got to go from this place, sell all of our stuff and give it to the poor. Maybe he's saying that to some of us, but he's not saying that that was what everyone needs. What he's saying is that if you aren't willing to give up everything for Jesus, he isn't yet your Lord. If we're not willing to give up everything for him, he isn't in control. He isn't truly our master that is ordering our steps and what we're doing. Now, this sounds harsh. It sounds like a big sacrifice. But when we look at Jesus, we don't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to sacrifice. Because he left heaven to come for us and died a brutal death for you and me. But also, he's not doing it to be cruel. What he's saying is, I have this perfect plan for us. He came to give us life in all its abundance. The best part of life that we could ever experience is with him. It's like that seed again. What that seed doesn't just become a, a plant by just staying on a shelf or in a pocket. What happens? It gets put into the dirt, then it cracks open, and then it comes out of the dirt, and then even then it needs watered and it needs pruned to be the perfect result of what it was created to be. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us. If you give me your heart, I will produce fruit in you. I will bring you to that perfect plan I have, but only when you're willing to submit to me as Lord, as master. See, Jesus wants our heart. He doesn't necessarily care about the money as he was talking to this guy, but he knew this guy's heart wasn't devoted to God. Randy Alcorn in the book, The Treasure Principle, talks about this. It's a, it's a small book, but very profound. And in that book, he says, my heart always goes where I put God's money. And in that, we can learn two things. The first thing is that it's God's money. It's God's gifting. Everything that we have is a gift from God. A lot of times we like to think that this is mine. We hold it close. But it's really God's gift. Our family, our friends, our spouse, our kids, they are gifts from God. And the second thing in that is that our hearts go where we put our money. And this is no, never more clear to me than when my wife Rachel and I started sponsoring kids through the World Vision, and then later through Southeast Asia Prayer Center, when we started sending money out, our hearts went out as well, and we desired a relationship with these kids. And then you start writing letters, and then we even got to visit one of them. And when you do that, when you invest your treasure, your heart goes with you. So what Jesus is saying is, I want your heart. And I know that money's going to trick us. He knows that money's going to trick us to want us to serve it, but he wants our heart so that we can live in that abundant life. Abraham Kuyper, who was a prime minister in the early 1900s in the Netherlands, and I, I use this quote not because I know a lot about prime ministers in the Netherlands in the 1900s, but because Pastor Barry does, oddly enough. Uh, he just pulled this quote out in conversation one time. I don't know too many people smart enough to do that, but he did, and I thought it was profound, so I 
I Googled it to make sure of the wording, and then I wanted to share it with you. It says this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. We see this in God's word over and over. You look into the Old Testament specifically, but it's in the New Testament as well. When God's people or others go and worship false gods, it makes God righteously angry. He can't stand when we go and we serve false gods, especially when we go and bow down to our belongings and attribute success to things that are of God, that are gifts from God instead of the creator of all things. We see this in God's word when his people were delivered from slavery in Egypt. We actually just sang about that song. God delivered his people from Egypt. He called this man named Moses to lead them out. He did these miraculous things to get him out of slavery. And then after that, they were in the wilderness and God provided food and drink for them so that they wouldn't starve or die of thirst. And God would lead them with a cloud of fire by night and a cloud of his glorious supernatural presence by day. And he would even speak to their leader Moses as one speaks to a friend. And then there was this one time where God called Moses up to a mountain to give him some laws for the people to live by. Again, not being harsh, but so that the people, if they followed these laws, they could understand this perfect plan that he had for their lives. But as Moses went up to the mountain, the people started getting upset. They got so upset that they started saying, we want to worship another God. We want to worship someone. Moses, who knows if he's ever coming back. We want to worship something. So they went to the priest. His name was Aaron. And they said, please make us a God. So they took all their jewels and their money. And they burnt them and they, they melted them down. And they made a statue of a golden calf. They literally took their money. They made something out of it. And they bowed down to it. And they sacrificed their food to it. And they said, this is our God. This is our God that took us out of Egypt. And they praised it. And then Moses starts to come down from the mountain. And this conversation with God occurred. And it's recorded in Exodus 32. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold and made a calf. And they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them. And I will destroy them. And I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. No, God did not destroy all the people. Him and Moses talked and thousands did die by the sword or by a plague. God did not destroy them. But what we learn from that is God does not stand when we worship false gods, when we worship our belongings, when we worship money. Now, thankfully, we don't see a lot of people today worshiping their money in that way. We don't see people like taking out their wallets and bowing down or like cooking up some Toma's meat and offering it to Amazon. We don't see that. But we do see people look to money often first before they look to God. Pastor John Nuzo, the lead pastor at Victory Family Church, said this this week. Uh, People often ask money for permission before asking God. Sometimes whenever we feel like we should do something, we go, well, is the money there? Is it right? Instead of going to God, because after all, when we look at God and all the gifts he's given us, we understand that everything is under his control. 
that he has all the power to do whatever he wants, and money is not even a blip on the radar of his problems. Like, there's nothing that money can, can do or not do against God. Like, he can do stuff whether we're wealthy or not, because that's how God works. And so when we think about money, we got to stop thinking of it as ours. we got to stop thinking of it as a gift from God. And, and instead of owners, we can think of us as stewards, someone who has been given a gift and should steward it wisely. When we see ourselves as stewards of God's gifts, it's easier to give them away. It's like if you ever go to a restaurant and order dessert. One, you know it's going to cost a lot of money. But two, it's probably going to be good. I mean, it's going to come out and it's going to look fancy. And whether it's a pie or cheesecake or ice cream or something else, I haven't eaten dinner yet. Uh, it's, it's, whatever it is, it's going to look good and you're going to want to eat it. And if you ordered it, you're probably going to keep it to yourself. Now, you might have asked your wife ahead of time, do you want some of this? And if she says no, you go, okay, I'll hold you to that. And then you eat it yourself. However, if the waitress or waiter comes over with a pie, a whole pie, maybe a peach pie because that's the best pie, if they bring it to you and, and give it to you and say, here's a whole pie, what do you do? You probably don't scarf that whole thing down by yourself. You probably look up and go to whoever's around the table, your, your spouse or your coworkers, your family, whatever, and say, hey, does anyone want a slice of this pie? And you give it out. Why? Because it's not yours. It's easier to give out something that doesn't belong to us. And so when we look at our money, if we think of it the same way, it will be easier to give it back to God because it's already his. And then what do we get? We get the blessing of receiving and the blessing of giving. And there is a blessing in giving. God's word's pretty clear about that. When we, when we give, we get this blessing from God and we know this as people, too. When we've given sacrificially to other people, when we see what God does in their lives, there's something that fills up our heart, the sense of joy and this peace. But the society that we live in is going to lie to us and say, oh, no, no, that's not true. Craig Rochelle, the pastor of Life Church, one time said, culture tells us it's more blessed to get. Tries to lie to us and say, no, no, it's not good to give. It's good to get. You turn on the TV and you see an ad or commercial and you see this is true. You watch any kind of ad that, I mean, it could say anything from selling jeans to you or like a spray to clean up your countertop, and it's saying, you just need this. You'll be satisfied when you get this. Imagine the time that you'll save by getting this spray that will clean up your dirt. And not only will it work, you'll, you'll be handsome and successful. So come on and buy this. Or you're watching a jeans commercial and it's like, here, this NFL quarterback's wearing those jeans. You could be an NFL quarterback. Buy our jeans. And it's just selling us this idea that we need more. One of my favorite things was a few weeks ago, whenever my wife and I came home from work, my sons were being watched by our in-laws, and they shared a story about how the TV was on and a commercial came on, and our oldest, Ezra, looked at it and pointed and looked at his grandma and grandpa and said, or nanny and pap, as they like to be called, and said, they're trying to get us to buy something. And he said it like knowing. And it's like, he's right though. They're just trying to get us to, to spend our money because they're trying to tell us that we need more, that it's more blessed to get. But that's not what Jesus said. He actually said the opposite. And it's recorded in the book of Acts. Paul quotes him and says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Human nature tells us that it's gonna hurt too much to give out, but there's this blessing in giving. There's also this idea that we can trust in God that if we're giving, we can't outgive him, that he's gonna give back because he's that good God. He's gonna provide. Again, issues aren't gonna arise. That money's gonna stop God from conquering. It's not on his radar of issues. 
So if we're looking at this and we're saying, how do we stop money from being our God? How do we stop in a society that worships it openly? How do we worship God as Lord of all of our lives, not just some of it? How do we serve this God who doesn't compromise, who takes no competition? I believe we can look in God's word and we can get information, we can apply it to our lives that will transform us and help us to understand the spiritual discipline of giving that will allow us to be formed into that perfect plan that God has for us. Let's look at the book of Deuteronomy. It's in chapter 14, 22 through 23. It was written a long time ago, but we can still apply it to our lives today. It says, you must set aside a tithe of your crops. One-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. There are three things that we can learn from this. The first one is simply God called the people to give 10% of what came in. They use the word tithe, which really just translates for, to mean one-tenth. And so he's telling the people to give 10% of what comes in. So us, how do we apply that today? Well, if we give zero, we should give 1% and then grow that to 2% and strive for that standard of 10%. It was talked about in the Old Testament, but then, which is, which is uh, the portion of God's word before Jesus came in the flesh to, to walk and teach on this earth. And then when Jesus came, he talked about tithing. He talked about it with these religious leaders called Pharisees. It's recorded in Luke's book in chapter 11, verse 42. It says, Jesus said, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb, herb, herb gardens. Herb, herb, why is that H there? But you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So Jesus is affirming tithing here, but he's also saying, hey, there's more important things. You've got to share the love of Jesus with the world. You've got to make sure that you're doing that. And in this, as he's talking about tithe, we might ask ourselves, well, is it still pertaining to 10%? That's what it said in Deuteronomy. Is it still 10% now? And I think what we can do is understand how Jesus talked about other ways that we're supposed to live. We could take that information and apply it to money. My wife actually pointed this out expertly maybe a year ago. Someone said something like, Jesus came to make everything easier for us. And, and when they said that, they were saying like, so we could do pretty much anything we want, right? And my wife expertly responded by saying, well, Jesus said that if you hate your brother, it's murder. And if you lust, it's adultery. It doesn't seem like Jesus came to make things easier. He, made, he came to make things right. Some of those things are harder naturally, but he came to make things right. He came to set us in this perfect relationship with God. And so if we look at that and what he talked about in those areas, we can understand what he's talking about in the area of tithing. You see, if Jesus increased the difficulty of how to live in the areas of hate and lust, would he not also expect our tithes to begin at 10% and grow from there? It might sound daunting to have that mindset, but again, it's simply the mindset of giving everything over to God and trusting in him. But let's not get too focused on a percentage or a number, because ultimately God is caring about our hearts. Are we submissive to him more than the number that's behind the money? No more can we see this clearly than in the book of Mark, where it says this, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts, 
Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. See, Jesus commended her not for the amount of her offering, but the submission of her heart. So as we look to apply this, we've got to ask ourselves, are we submissive to God? Is our hearts dedicated to him? Does he reign in our lives? The second thing that we can get from this passage of Deuteronomy and apply to our lives today is this. God called people to tithe to the designated place of worship. It's good and important for us to know that giving money and sending money to mission organizations or the poor or other worthy causes is a good thing. But God's word is clear that the first fruit, the first of our money, our tithe should go to a local place of worship. I'll be honest, I didn't always do this well. And to be completely truthful with you, before I came to New Life, I didn't really do this at all. I was a part of a church and I knew where their money went and I didn't like supporting it. And that's sinful on my part because God says, do this, not do this only when you feel okay about it. He says, listen to me. And then I didn't do it. But when I came to New Life, something amazing happened. I started to see where the money went. And I realized that the money was going to further God's message through the ends of the earth. In Saxonburg, and Butler, in Pittsburgh, in Romania, in India, in Pakistan, in Myanmar, in Cambodia, in Dominican Republic, in Africa. And I'm sure I'm missing some places. But I started to realize where it was going. It became easier to give because I knew what the mission was. And yes, it also goes to paying my salary and the salary of the staff, and it also goes to keeping this place open so that we can have a place where we can gather and learn and grow and live. And it also goes to keeping our new life kids and our new life students growing. And it's been so cool, this is just a side note, to see God blessing both of those ministries as they've been growing spiritually and numerically. And so as we give to new life, As you and I decide to tithe it and listen to this, let us know that we're going to a mission that's set on furthering God's message to the ends of the earth, starting here and then going everywhere. The third thing that we can take is God called people to give from their first fruits, to give our best, saying, don't give a diseased ram to me, give the best of your flock to me. How do we apply that today? Well, what it's saying is that before we spend the rest of our money, we give to God. So you don't wait till the end of the month and we have the leftovers and say, all right, God, you can have those. We give at the first. Because when we do that, when we give our first fruits, what we're going to do is actually do it. And then we're also going to be generous. But the more generous we are, the more we're going to be like Jesus, who is a generous God who came and gave everything for us. And as we give and as we talk about giving, let's remember what Aaron talked about last week where she said about how we can worship God with not only our treasure, but with our time and our talents and our touch. And it's so cool to be a part of a church that does that, where I can see that all around, that not only do we worship God and serve him with our treasure, and we do, there's never been a missions trip or a retreat that New Life Students has gone on that a student couldn't go because of money. Someone's always provided which is incredibly cool. And people give of their time and their talents as well. If you've ever been to our 1030 service, you are likely to see at the end of service, Shannon and Shane McGraw up here, and they give their time almost every week. They, they both work full-time. They have four wonderful daughters, but they are still giving of their time to God. 
We see that New Life students recently, a story of victory. Bethany Bowser took the position of New Life students administrator, and she is a full-time master's student, and she also has a husband and a kid as well, and she decided that she wanted to give of her time and her talents to support New Life students to grow to where God wants it to be. And so we, we see that, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, and it's cool to look out and see and know that we are part of the whole iceberg as the family of God, that together, collectively, we serve God in doing that. So as we go this week, let us think about ways and let's pray and ask God. Let's go with our families as well and ask our families, how, how can we give collectively together? And as we go, let's understand that it is a sacrifice, one that God is asking us to make. But as I was reading that book by Bill Quisheek, she had this wonderful quote about sacrifice and it kind of put my heart in the right perspective. I wanted to share it with you. It says, I've always thought it a sacrifice to give up my own will. But it's no sacrifice because it keeps me closer to you, God. How could your presence be a sacrifice? How could experiencing the fullness of God's love and his perfect plan for our lives truly be a sacrifice when we get to walk and step with his glory to glory to his supernatural nature to hear from his voice? When we give, when we do these spiritual disciplines, we get to grow closer to God. So as we set to practice this one, the spiritual discipline of giving this week, We can do that through this next step, which says, I will pray and give something away this week. And again, if we have a family, then we should probably say, we will pray and together give something collectively this week. Again, it could be time, talent, treasure, and touch. But as we do that, as we sacrifice to Jesus, we'll start living into that perfect plan that he has for us. Again, it might not be our perfect plan for our lives, but the one that he has set from the beginning of time to tell the world about his goodness and love. And as we think about sacrifice, let's think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and I, who came to this earth, who left heaven to die on the cross for us. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he did that. So today, what we're going to talk about is the opportunity, if you've never given your life, sacrificed your will over to Jesus as Lord, meaning owner, and Savior, meaning rescuer from sin and death. Here at New Life, we say it's as simple as ABC. A, meaning we first, we admit. We admit that we're sinners, that we're far from perfect, but God is perfect, and that we need him to forgive us of our sins. And then B, we believe. We believe in Jesus as Lord, that owner and master and God and Savior. And then we confess. We confess our sins to Jesus, and we confess our need for him to own and to run and direct our lives and we commit to living for him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right now what we're going to do is have an opportunity to pray and to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done it, I'd encourage you to say a prayer alongside me. Say it with your own words, your own heart, and your own mind. God's word says when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, that is when we come into this relationship with Jesus. So right now, would you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for being a good and almighty God. I pray that right now, that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they will say this prayer with me. They'll say, Jesus, I admit that you are the one true God. Jesus, you are God's son that died for me and rose again. I admit that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Forgive me of my sins and enter into my life. 
Start working on me, that perfect plan that you have for me. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.